0: Welcome to the latest podcast from the Stevenson Harwood Employment Team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Beth Hale, and I'm a Senior Associate. I have with me Parvis Ghani, an Employment Partner, and today we're going to discuss whistleblowing claims, looking at who can bring them and what the key issues are, as well as giving some practical tips for employers on how to deal with whistleblowing issues when they arise in the workplace. For the purposes of this podcast, we'll be focusing on whistleblowing in general rather than the specific procedures which apply in the financial services sector. So, Parvis, let's start with the very basics. What is a whistleblower?
1: A whistleblower, for employment law purposes, uh, is an employee or worker who has made what is known as a protected disclosure. Now, the definition of protected disclosure is split into two parts. Firstly, the disclosure has to be a qualifying disclosure, which deals with the subject matter of the disclosure and the belief of the employee. Secondly, the disclosure must be made in the correct way in order to gain protection. So this usually means that it must be made to the employer and those are the types of disclosures we're going to look at today. But there are limited circumstances in which an external disclosure can also be protected. So let's look at a qualifying disclosure. Now a qualifying disclosure is a disclosure of information which in the reasonable belief of the worker tends to show that some kind of wrongdoing has occurred or is occurring. Now, wrongdoing for these purposes is pretty broadly defined, but it does include not only criminal acts, but also a breach of any legal obligation, including breaches of employment laws and some regulatory obligations. Now, an important thing to bear in mind is that the employee does not have to be right in what they are saying, neither that what they believe is happening is unlawful, nor that it is happening at all. A reasonable belief that wrongdoing is taking place is sufficient. Now, since 2013, the individual also has to have a reasonable belief that the disclosure they are making is in the public interest. And this is really important. And we're going to discuss this requirement in a bit more detail shortly.
0: So once someone can show that they are a whistleblower, what does that mean for them? What extra protections do they get?
1: Well, whistleblowers are protected against being dismissed or being subjected to any detriment because they've blown the whistle. However, it's important to remember that if the individual is blowing the whistle on their own wrongdoing, they are not protected from action being taken against them in relation to the wrongdoing itself. It's only against the detriment or dismissal because of having blown the whistle.
0: And we've seen a real increase in whistleblowing claims over the past few years. Why are employees so keen to define themselves as whistleblowers, do you think?
1: Well, there are two main reasons for this. Now, firstly, unlike for a straightforward unfair dismissal claim, an employee does not have to have two years' service to bring a whistleblowing claim. So whistleblowing protection is a day-one right. Secondly, and probably more importantly, there is no cap on compensation in whistleblowing claims. Now, this means that, particularly for high earners, employees can claim bigger compensation sums than they would be able to for unfair dismissal.
0: You referred earlier to the public interest test. The Court of Appeal recently considered this issue in a case called Nur Mohammed and Chesterton's. Now, in that case, the employee raised concerns about manipulation of the company's accounts, which he believed had had a negative impact on commission income for him and also for around 99 other managers. The main question in that case was whether it could be said that the employee had a reasonable belief that his disclosure was in the public interest. What was the Court of Appeal's conclusion?
1: Well, the Court of Appeal essentially found that there are no absolute rules about what is reasonable to view as being in the public interest for these purposes. Now, in this case, the impact on 99 other employees was sufficient to show public interest, but future cases will turn heavily on the facts. Now, the court pointed to four factors to take into account. These are, number one, the number of people affected, number two, the nature of the alleged wrongdoing, number three, the nature of the interests affected, and number four, the identity of the alleged wrongdoer. So, the larger the organization, there could be stronger grounds to argue that wrongdoing will be in the public interest. Now whilst this guidance is helpful, it still leaves a great deal of uncertainty for employers when dealing with whistleblowing complaints. Now in practical terms, where does this leave employers? I would say that the safest approach for employers is to assume that the public interest test is satisfied if an individual raises concerns which go any way beyond his own personal situation and to tread particularly carefully in those circumstances. Now that does not mean they have to concede that point but certainly proceed on that assumption.
0: So let's take an example of where an employee complains about bullying or harassment or that the employer has breached their individual contract of employment. Would this be a qualifying disclosure and result in the employee being entitled to whistleblowing protection?
1: Well, in theory, the answer is yes. The employee could qualify for whistleblower protection in these instances. Now, it would depend on the facts, and the big hurdle would be to show that they have had a reasonable belief that the disclosure of information was made in the public interest. But you could have circumstances where the complaint relates to or impacts on a large group of people in the organisation, the nature of the interests affected could have a wider impact on the employee's business, and the wrongdoer is in a prominent position in the organisation. Now, a good example of where it might be possible to envisage circumstances where a complaint of bullying could meet the public interest test, would be, say, within a hospital or NHS trust.
0: So let's look at some practical tips for employers. What should employees be doing if they think they may have a potential whistleblower on their hands? Are there particular steps they should be taking or procedures they should be following?
1: Well, most employees should now have a whistleblowing policy in place, which sets out procedures by which staff can report genuine concerns about conduct within the organisation. Now, this policy should be widely available to employees and training should be provided to management in how to deal with complaints made under the procedure. And employees should be encouraged to refer to the policy if they have concerns. However, the trickier issues often arise in relation to concerns raised by employees during a grievance or disciplinary process, which they then seek to rely on as a protected disclosure. As I've said already, alarm bells should certainly start ringing for employers when employees raise concerns about issues which go beyond their own personal situation and extend to other employees or broader issues in the workplace. Now, in those circumstances, even more than usual, employees should be keeping careful notes of meetings, carrying out a thorough investigation, and in particular, ensuring that any action taken in relation to the employee who has raised the concern There is a documented rationale which is unrelated to the alleged disclosure.
0: It's quite common for employees to try and disrupt disciplinary processes or performance management procedures by raising a grievance or by trying to identify themselves in some way as a whistleblower. What would your advice be to employers in those circumstances? Would you generally suggest postponing the disciplinary or the performance process while you investigate the allegations?
1: Well, I think the key point in these circumstances is to try and keep the two processes entirely separate. Now, if a disciplinary or performance process has already started, it should be straightforward to establish that it is unconnected with any other issues, and you should keep a careful paper trail showing that the commencement of the process was not in any way triggered by any disclosure or complaint made by the employee. Now, if the employee has raised a grievance which can be investigated and closed down relatively quickly, it may be appropriate to adjourn the disciplinary or performance process. However, A postponement may just drag the entire thing out, and there is nothing wrong with carrying out both processes concurrently, provided they are kept separate at all times. Then you should appoint separate investigating and hearing officers for each process and ensure that there is no cross-contamination. Keep careful notes in relation to each process, but remember that those notes will be disclosable in any litigation, so careful is the operative word. Now, if the grievance relates to the subject matter of the disciplinary process or is about the process itself, it may be appropriate to deal with the grievance as part of the disciplinary, by the same disciplinary manager.
0: And do you have any final tips for employers faced with a whistleblowing claim? Well, I think the key takeaway point for employers when dealing with any potential
1: whistleblowing complaints is this. Where an employee is being subjected to a disciplinary or performance process, but a complaint was previously made by that person, which could fall within the whistleblowing bucket, even if that complaint is about a breach of their contract or obligations to them, the key takeaway point for employers is that they should focus on the reasons for any disciplinary or performance-related action and separate this from any previous complaints or issues. Ultimately, employers should be prepared to defend any unmeritorious whistleblowing claims on the reasons for the disciplinary action or dismissal that is in question. Remember that successful claims are relatively rare and, provided you tread carefully, keep careful records and ensure proper processes are followed, you're likely to be in a good position to defend such claims.
0: Thanks, Parvis, and thanks for listening. Remember that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud, or on the Stevenson-Harwood website. If you have any questions about whistleblowing or any other employment law issues, do get in touch with me, Parvis, or your usual Stevenson-Harwood contact.